Well, it's great to be with you. Um, it would be really helpful to have your uh, book for NYC opened at page 8. There's an outline on page 8 and 9. Now, just a couple of introductory comments about the talks at NYC. Uh, the first is that NYC gives us the freedom that isn't restricted by 45-minute lunch hours and that sort of thing to, to delve a little bit more deeply into God's Word um, than we often do. And, and we'll have five talks that are sort of all part of the package of NYC. I hope by the end of it, uh, the talks and the seminars and the small group material will all start to sort of pull together and you probably won't remember what was in any of them because hopefully under God... Uh, the ideas and the truths of resurrection have started to become solid and real in such a way that you don't remember what Tim said or what was in your seminar, it, it all fits together. Uh, secondly, the outline is meant to give you uh, a bit of a, a guidance as to where we're going. You can sort of follow where we're up to and predict when we're going to finish. Um, but can I say this is not a university lecture where the idea is you just write down everything the lecturer says in case it's in the exams. Um, please don't do that. Uh, I want you to listen to what's being said. I'm going to do my best to bring the Word of God to you as it's revealed in Scriptures. And I want you not to be someone just writing everything down, but listening. Now, if writing helps you do that, terrific. If it doesn't, maybe don't write at all. Listen with your mind. Listen discerningly. I'm going to give you all the passages. Uh, you'll be able to look them up, follow them through. I want you to see whether what I'm saying is true to the Scriptures. But also listen with your heart. Listen to the implications for you. If this is true, if this is real, where does that take me? Where does it lead me? So with that in mind, will you pray with me? Father, please guard my mouth to say what is true and helpful. And please expand our minds and hearts to understand and receive for the sake of Jesus. Amen. If you're not good at flipping your Bible and having uh, your book and the Bible open on your knee at the same time, uh, we'll spend the fair bit of tonight on Acts 17, so leave your Bible open there. Uh, we will go to some other passages, some of which will come up on the screen. Well, at NYC, we're doing things the wrong way around. We're starting at the end. That's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? You, you read a book, you watch a movie, you start at the beginning, don't you? You wouldn't start at the end of a movie and think that will make sense. But actually, there's lots of things where you do start at the end. You're going on a road trip. Where do you start? Well, you do start somewhere, but you, it's the destination that matters, doesn't it? It's the end point. Uh, there's a, I think it's an apocryphal story about somebody who uh, just uh, was a bit lost and they walked up to some old guy who was doing some gardening and said, can you give me some directions to get to Mikathara? And the old guy sat there, thought for a minute, and he said, well, if I was going to Mikathara, I wouldn't start here. <laughs> and sometimes we, we need the end to work out where to start. And that's what this year's NYC is about. We're looking at the end, where God is taking us. Now, as you try to understand Christianity and take it to heart, there's lots of places we could start. We could start with the character of God himself. We could start with creation. We could start with epistemology. How, how do we know anything at all? But this week we're starting at the end, resurrection. Of course, I think if we get that clear, if we're confident in that, that will shape how we live now and we'll work out where to start life. Well, how will it all end? 
lots of theories, lots of ideas, because it's in the future and we're just sort of speculating, aren't we? Some people think that probably will end in nuclear holocaust. Humans are so stupid that one day we'll use nuclear weapons and just kill each other off. Maybe there'll be a different sort of extinction event. An asteroid will hit planet Earth and that'll be the end. Will global warming do it for us? Now it gets a bit warmer, so we turn the air conditioners on and it gets a bit warmer. Of course, the air conditioners, so we turn the air conditioners up and it gets a bit warmer and eventually we'll be like those frogs that just get too hot and boil to death. Will another pandemic be far more fatal than COVID and kill off the whole human population? Suddenly that becomes a a possibility in our imagination. Or if you're a cosmologist who thinks about the whole universe and how it all works, you probably know that unless something intervenes, the whole universe will just end up in the end in total entropy. The, the, the variations in temperature will all gradually diminish. It will all head towards zero degrees Kelvin. And I don't want to be there when that happens. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul arrives in Athens, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Is this going to work for me? Yes. Okay. That's what it looks like. Well, some of it looks like now. Athens really was a very famous city in the ancient world. It was sort of the tourist attraction. You wanted to go and see things? Well, it was the Acropolis and the Parthenon. They were on your bucket list. But it was even more renowned for its philosophers, its great thinkers, like Socrates. UWA likes to think it's a place of great learning, so Socrates has got a statue at UWA. Plato, Aristotle. I'll tell you what, it's worth reading some of these guys because it'll save you from generationalism. You know what that is? That's the belief that my generation is smarter than the one before. You read these guys and you realise they were smarter than us. They, they really were. It's now 500 years or so after Socrates. It's still the cultural, intellectual centre of the ancient Mediterranean world. Rome might have been the political and military capital, but, well, Athens was like Paris is today, I guess. There were great philosophical schools there, the the forerunners of universities, the sort of Cambridges and Oxfords, they were all in Athens. And one of the great issues debated, discussed in Athens was life after death. But what happens to us when we die? Socrates himself was famous for his belief that there was life after death. He was eventually sentenced to death by the local council for corrupting the youth of Athens. Before his death, he he drank some poison to kill himself. He gathered his followers around him, and his followers recorded four speeches that he made on the eve of his death, proving, amongst other things, that the human soul is immortal that there's a part of us, this internal soul or spirit that goes on. Death is not the end. And so he said it this way. A human is a little soul carrying around a corpse. Which bit's the corpse, do you reckon? It's the body. It's just a corpse. It's something that you want to get rid of. It's a prison. Uh, And it'll be good riddance when it goes, because then the real you, which is your soul, will go on. Death will be a release. Now, the followers said he was so convincing that they wanted to drink poison as well and he had to try and stop them. By Paul's day, Socrates' idea of the immortal soul had sort of become the dominant belief. But in Paul's day, it was challenged by the Epicureans. 
who were basically, I guess, modern-day materialists, you could say. They believed you just died and that was the end. Your body rotted in the grave and there was nothing more to it. And so this is how one Epicurean said it on his own tombstone. I was. Sorry, I wasn't. I was. I'm not. I don't care. Sort of sounds very modern, doesn't it? But it was back then, the Epicureans. The Stoics were a bit different. That They put pride of place to logic and reason. They thought the emotions were sort of, they'd always lead you astray. So suppress the emotions and just cultivate the life of the soul, the life of your logic and, and reason, your thinking. Um, and they believed that life would go on in the soul after you died. And into this great city, Athens, wanders Paul. And he, he sees what's going on. He does a bit of a tourist sightseeing trip. And instead of being impressed by the iconic buildings and the, the marble marbles around, he's distressed by all the idols in this city. It's full of them. Every street you walk down, there are little temples with, with images, with uh, marbles, uh, images of gods on them. And he starts to talk. He goes to the marketplace, the sort of piazza, where everything happens in, uh, in Athens. And he begins to debate with the philosophers. Now, they think he's just a babbler. Interesting thing to say, a, a barbarian. He's from Palestine, and there's no hundred top universities in Palestine. No philosophers have ever come from Palestine. But they're confused about what he's saying as well. Did you hear what they say? They say he's advocating foreign gods. What gods? Well, the foreign gods they mention are Jesus and resurrection. What? Resurrection's a god? Well, yeah, probably in, in, in Greek that they were using... Jesus, Jesus, was a male name. Anastasis, resurrection, was female. They, they probably thought he was talking about you know, two gods, a male and a female consort of, of gods, because he was talking so much about Jesus and so much about resurrection. That's what they thought he must be on about. Now, they didn't just de-platform him when he was confusing. They said, we want to hear some more. They give him the floor to explain. And he begins with the observation in verse 22. I see that you are in every way very religious. It's an interesting observation because the word religious there is not a very positive one. It's not, ah, oh, you're very devout people. It's more you're very superstitious people. You know, this centre of logic and reason. But it's full of all these idols, all these gods. And he said, well, I, want, I even saw an image, an idol, to an unknown god, an altar. You're so humble, well, you're humble enough to, to, to admit that you don't know everything, and you're superstitious enough to cover all your bases. So just in case there's a few gods you've missed, you've got an altar to an unknown god. For all your philosophy and logic, you're actually pretty superstitious. And then he proceeds to dismantle all their religion and idolatry. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He's not served by human hands. So he says there's one real God who created everything. Um, uh, you, uh, you might call him Zeus and Apollos and Artemis and all those things gods, but they don't actually qualify to be a real God because a real God, the only real God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And if he created the heavens and the earth, he doesn't need a temple. He doesn't live in temples. He's not homeless. He doesn't need you to build a home for him. 
and he doesn't need your offerings. Because he's not hungry. He doesn't need an orange. He doesn't need an ox sacrificed to him because he doesn't have a stomach that rumbles. He doesn't need your wine offerings because he doesn't drink. He's God. He's not just a big human, a superhero. No, we need a home and he gives us one. We need breath and he gives us breath. We need food and he gives us food. We don't give him food. See, idolatry inverts reality and truth. It sort of turns it upside down and it's so obviously wrong. It's so obviously illogical. There's something perverse about it. If you read much of the Old Testament, you realise that over and over again through the prophets, God makes fun of idolatry. Uh, Isaiah 44 is one example. Uh, Isaiah talks about the man who walks into the the forest, takes his axe in and he cuts down a tree, takes it back to to his his camp or his, his home or whatever, and he cuts it in half, and out of one half of it, he carefully chisels away, chops and, and sandpapers it back, until he's got an image of a god. And then he says to the god, this piece of wood he got from the forest, save me. And with the other half of the bit of wood, do you know what he does with that? Well, he splits it up and makes a fire for himself to keep himself warm. You think, how dumb is that? That's right, it, it is dumb. And we might think, we're not so stupid today, are we? We don't make idols like that. Do you know what the New Testament calls idolatry? Greed. The love of money. Because it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? What do we in our culture say broadly? Money, please save us. If I've got enough money, it will make my life. It'll make me secure. It'll give me everything I want in life. And we're willing to sacrifice almost anything for it, aren't we? We sacrifice our families. We fight wars over minerals and money. It possesses us in so many ways. That that is our culture. Sure, we don't bow down to it. We just serve it and are devoted to it. Idolatry is alive and well. It just takes different forms. And Paul draws out the implications of that in verses 29 and 30. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We are God's offspring. He made us, so don't make gods. And so if we have been making gods, if we've been uh, being devoted to other things like money or, uh, or other gods, idols, then repent. Repent of your idolatry. Repent of worshipping and serving created things rather than the creator. Now, repent is probably the most confrontational word you can use, isn't it? If somebody walks up to you and says, repent, what are they saying? They're not just saying you think something wrong. They're saying your whole life direction is wrong. That's confrontational, isn't it? You've got to turn around. Turn around. Don't keep going in that same direction. But how serious is this call to repent? Well, that depends a lot on what happens at the end. If at the end you just die and your body rots in the grave, well, who cares? I can ignore that call with impunity. If you think that this world will just go on and on and on, well, it probably doesn't matter. If you think your, your soul escapes the body for some sort of soul life life after this, then probably it doesn't matter. Your soul will just go on. 
Who knows? But for Paul, the call is serious because there's a looming end time. There's a date with destiny. And so he talks about the end of all things. Verse 31. He, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's a bold claim, isn't it? There is a day coming when God will judge everybody. Now, some people do want some sort of judgment. I've noticed that belief in karma is becoming more popular amongst people at the moment, that there ought to be some repercussions for how we live. It should matter somehow, but karma is just, well, you go on to a different life and that might be worse or better than this life. But a day is much more firm. He's saying there's a world, as we know it, will come to a dramatic, abrupt stop. All humanity, dead and alive on that day, from every continent, every land, every generation, will be judged justly. Now that is a bold claim, isn't it? Here in the centre of the philosophical world of the, of, uh, the ancient world, Paul makes this claim that there's an end to history. Now, notice that that claim can only be true if there is life after death. If there's no life after death, the claim doesn't make any sense at all. Well, actually, more accurately, the claim can only be true if there's life after life after death. You might die, and maybe your soul goes on, but the day means there's going to be a day in which you come to life again to face judgment, you and every other person to be judged justly. See, that is not about a soul that just sort of goes on and on and on and maybe changes form at some point, like liquid going to gas. No, this is about an end, a day, when life as we know it, this world as it exists, will come to an end. It's a bold claim too, because Paul is saying, I know the future with some certainty. How does Paul know? Well, it's clear from verse 31. He knows because of resurrection. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising this person, this judge, from the dead. Now, I presume you can work out who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. His resurrection on the other side of the Mediterranean world in Palestine a few years before this. He's talking about an event in history that tells you how history will end. There will be a day of just judgment, a future for every person. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that he, was, he died, he was buried, he was raised again because he came to life after life after death. So will everyone else. Resurrection is actually quite an unusual, a a sort of bizarre idea. It's not on many people's radars. What what do most people think will happen after we die? It's going to work. Yeah, there we go. These are the three options most people put on the table. You see them? What happens after you die? Well, you cease to exist, your body rots, you're reincarnated or your soul goes on forever. And they were the ones that were on the table when Paul spoke in Athens. But what Paul puts on the table is another option most people have never thought of, which is your body will be resurrected. Now, I want you to just stop and talk for a moment. Talk with the person next to you. I want you to try and just guess which one of those is most popular amongst university students in Perth. I don't mean among you. I mean, you know, think about the people in your classes, the people in your year at uni. 
Which do you reckon is most popular? Just have a chat with the person next to you for a minute. Okay, let's have a quick show of hands. Who thought A might be the most popular? Yeah, okay, that, that's quite a lot. B? C? Okay, quite a few. D? Yeah, I think you're, you're right. I'll give you the results in a minute of, well, a few minutes, of a survey we did amongst uni students in Perth a while ago. Because A, B and C are sort of intuitively possible, aren't they? If all we are is biological machines, computers, then presumably when you die, the machine turns off and that's the end. If we're more than that, then if karma's real, it's got to come back somewhere, doesn't it? So another life and coming back as something else seems to make sense. Or if you think that inside us is something more permanent than just a body, you, you have a soul, then C sort of makes sense. But D is off the radar, isn't it? Like there's nothing that would indicate that that might be intuitively right. Now you think of caterpillars becoming butterflies, but that's not resurrection, is it? That, that's more, much more like uh, reincarnation. There's nothing like resurrection. So what evidence does Paul offer? Well, his evidence is the resurrection of Jesus. He says that's the event that reveals the future. That's the event that determines the end. God raised Jesus to life. That's the proof that there will be an end, a day of judgment. Yeah, we just started to scratch the surface of what Paul is saying. We're not following all the, the, the logic of it. But let's step back for a minute and think about Paul himself. Paul was a first century Jew. And even amongst the Jews of Paul's time, life after death was a contentious issue. Uh, we know from Mark chapter 12, yeah, here we go. Mark chapter 12. If you're good at, at finding passages in the Bible and you can keep everything balanced on your knee, come with me to Mark chapter 12. Verse 18. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. Here we go. We're introduced to two different groups. The others are the Pharisees who, who are in the shadows here. But the, the Sadducees were the religious establishment, the political leaders amongst the Jews in the days of Jesus and, and Paul. And we're told they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. It's just an easy way to remember it. Okay. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they did believe in the resurrection um, and this end-time day of judgment. And the question was contested in the public square amongst Jews of the time of Jesus. And the Sadducees draw Jesus into the debate. And they come along with this, what they think is a sort of knockdown argument. Teacher, they say, Moses wrote for us, is a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children. The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's called levitical marriage, if you want to follow it up. 
uh, you can find some cross-references. And then they spin this story. Imagine a lady marries one brother, but there's seven brothers. He dies. No kids? So the next brother's got to marry her. He dies. She must have been a bad cook. The next brother marries, marries her. And then the next one. Then the next one. Finally, they're all dead. Whose wife will she be in heaven? In the resurrection. And now, it's not really a question. It's, it's an argument that makes fun of the idea of resurrection. It says it's a pretty stupid idea. And you get the impression that they've been using this knockdown argument probably for a, a, a couple of years now, and it's been running pretty successfully. No one's, it hasn't crashed yet. Listen to Jesus' response, verse 24. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? You're in error in not believing in the resurrection because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, Let's think about the power of God for a minute. He says you don't know. A revealing statement because it helps us understand that resurrection is fundamentally different to something like immortality of the soul or reincarnation, which is just sort of the natural order of things continuing on. Part of you that is immortal. It survives just by its nature. But resurrection requires the supernatural work, the supernatural power of God. The only people who can believe in resurrection are people who believe in a powerful God who's active in his creation. A God who's the creator of heaven and earth and therefore nothing is too hard for him. Zeus can't do that. Only the God who created the world, the heavens, can do that. The God of the Bible. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who created all. The God that Abraham discovered is the God who gives life to the dead. It's going to work. Here we go. This is from Romans 4. Discussing uh, Abraham and Sarah. Remember, Abraham gets to about 90 years old, 99 actually. Sarah's about 90. They've never been able to have kids. He's, he's just dead. And then God says, I'm going to give you a son, Isaac. And God gives them a son. And we're told in Romans that Abraham came to believe that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not it's only that sort of God under which resurrection can make any sense. Second, Jesus says they don't know the scriptures. In verse 25, uh, he talks about when, they, when the dead rise, they won't be given in marriage, so your argument's pretty stupid. And then he says, but about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the book of Exodus, that is, the second book of the Bible, in the account of the burning bush, you know that story? God appears and speaks to, to Moses at the burning bush, and he says to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as being scripture. So Jesus really needs to go there. It might seem an odd verse to go to, but listen to what Jesus says. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, what's the logic of that? Is he saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now alive? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To be the God of somebody is to be their protector. That's what God promised to Abram, as we'll see tomorrow morning. God promised to protect them from their enemies. Well, what if they die? Because if they die, then an enemy has been stronger than them. It either means God has failed as their protector, or... God is going to raise them. And when God speaks to Moses in Exodus 3, all three are dead and buried. 
But God doesn't say, I was the, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He says, I am the God. That is, he's still their protector. He will raise them back to life again in the future. See, if God is your protector, the same logic holds, doesn't it? If God is your protector and you die, what is God promising to do? To bring you back to life, to raise you like he will do for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it's worth noting at this point that this is no academic question for Jesus. He knows that within four days he'll be crucified, he'll be dead, he'll be buried in a stone tomb. He entrusts his life, his future, to his God and Father, the God of the living. And the rest is history. Two days later, he's seen alive Again, miraculously, marvellously. And Paul says that event offers proof to the philosophers in Athens that there is an end, that God will come to judge through Jesus. He's given proof in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is quite a strange event. Stop and think for a minute. No one saw it actually happen. They just experience, they witness the effects of it, an empty tomb, appearances. And in any estimate, it is a very unusual event. It's it's an anomaly in history. It's unique as far as we know. We don't expect resurrections to happen, do we? In our funerals, we don't leave the lid off the coffins just in case they decide to come back to life again. (laughs) When you went to the cemetery this afternoon, what are the gravestones made out of? Granite. Because it lasts and lasts and lasts. We're not expecting resurrections. You're expecting resurrections, you'd probably make it out of cardboard. But we don't, do we? Because resurrections don't happen. They, they are strange. But what does it prove? Well, I think as Christians, we're often unsure what to do with the resurrection of Jesus. We sort of know it matters. And we, uh, I've poked around a few websites that try to address the issue. And a lot of them are trying to prove either that it happened or it didn't happen. Now, that is a real issue. Did it really happen? We mustn't avoid that, sidestep it. Because if it didn't really happen, Christianity falls to pieces in your fingers. It's a question worth uh, asking. We will ask it during this week. Wednesday morning, we'll spend some time on that particular question. Some websites suggested that it proves that Jesus is God. Now, he is God. But I don't know how the resurrection proves he's God. It just doesn't seem to commute for me. Compute. Some people see the resurrection as the sort of necessary happy ending to the Jesus story. I mean, you only read books and, and watch movies where there's a happy ending, don't you? If you know there's going to be a sad ending, you're not interested because we want things to be happy. We want it to end in the good place, even if it's tense and, 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 and we struggle all the way through it. It's got to end happy, doesn't it? And maybe the resurrection is just the happy ending. It just leaves us all feeling, oh, that's nice. It's nice for you, Jesus, and it's nice for us. Is that all it is? Does the resurrection prove there's life after death? Well, sort of, and we'll explore that tomorrow. But Paul says that the resurrection proves that the end of the world is coming. This world has an end. There is a day of judgment. Now, it's not immediately obvious to me how the resurrection of Jesus proves that there's an end coming. We need to explore that more this week. But whatever it proves, 
I want you to note the language that the New Testament uses over and over and over again about Jesus. It says that he was raised from the dead. Or more literally, raised from among the dead ones. Now, try and picture what that's, that, that's describing in, in your imagination. What it's saying is, Jesus was dead. That's sort of pretty straightforward, isn't it? There was no pulse. He'd stopped breathing. His body had stopped living. So much so that they buried him and left him in a cold tomb among the dead. But he was raised from the dead. He, he, he was then alive. The word resurrection literally means stand up. That, that's physical, isn't it? Your soul doesn't stand up. It's your body laid in a tomb that stands up. It's not about a spirit or a soul that has left the body and lives on life after death. I presume that was the state of Jesus immediately on his death. No, resurrection is about life after life after death. What it's describing in the New Testament is unambiguous. Jesus was alive again, having been dead for a while. I may struggle to understand how that happened, and what his resurrection life was really like, we'll spend time exploring it, but that's what it's about. That is the claim of Christianity. Well, let's think about some of the implications. The rest of MYC, we're going to explore many of these in much more detail and others beside, but let me just point out three to start with. Oh, sorry, let's go back to that. We did a, a survey uh, a few years ago amongst the students on all the campuses uh, in WA, in Perth, and these were the actual results. It's interesting, isn't it? Even though you, many of you thought that A would be the most popular, actually the most popular was C. If you visited any cemeteries recently, and you might have, you've probably seen C all over the place, haven't you? Rose and I visited, the, we live just near a cemetery. We, we went and visited the, the children's cemetery, the part where uh, young babies and young children uh, are buried or their ashes are, are cremated. And almost every one of the plaques was in the shape of a butterfly. They want to believe somehow that their dead child is not dead. It continues on. It's an angel in the sky. It's a star in the sky. It's, it's something. Yeah, I think that is the most popular belief in Australia at the moment. The immortality of the soul. They might not be able to put it into words, but that's what people cling to so often. That's our future. Let's think about Jesus. Uh, sorry, Jesus is alive first. Jesus, if Jesus was resurrected, that means he is alive today. He's a living person. I can know, talk to, trust, serve, and live for. I can't do that for Shakespeare or Elvis. They might live on in people's memories, but they're not alive. But Jesus is. And that also means he's active. He's active ruling his universe, building his church, interceding for his people. And therefore, he is, I hope, and must be a significant factor in our lives. Secondly, it means our future is resurrection, just like Jesus. One day, the graves will be empty. Remember those graves you saw today? They look so final. The grass is growing up in them. The, the, the granite slabs are starting to crack. They're, they're just left there. Or they're little plaques, uh, little concrete niches with a, with a plaque on it. 
One day, those graves will be busted open. The niches will be empty. There will be bodies standing all over the place, moving. That is the future for people. But that's not what most people think. 3% of students at UWA thought that resurrection was our future. That's tiny, isn't it? Most people don't know. They haven't got a clue that Jesus' resurrection means this is their future. And resurrection means that there will be an end to this world as we know it. One day God will say, stop. I'm going to judge the world with justice by this man Jesus whom I raised from the dead. Now I know many of us feel a little bit coy about the idea of God judging, the prospect of judgment. But can I say to you, I think it's a very good thing that God will judge. Firstly, it means that the decisions we make in this life do have significance. They don't just get swept away, buried in the ground with no significance whatsoever. Resurrection means what I do, the choices I make have significance. Secondly, it means that those who suffered injustice and evil will be vindicated. Every time you say, that's not fair, you're asking Jesus to come and judge. I don't know whether you realise that. And that's not fair, I gather, is the most common phrase for any child to say in Western world. (laughs) That's not fair. You've said it, haven't you? You're, You're asking for someone to come and make it right. And God says, I will, through Jesus. And thirdly, it means that the future of the universe is a very physical thing. The end game is not souls floating, but bodies doing And many Christians, I think, are really unhelpful in our thinking and even our words at this point. We mainly talk about going to heaven when I die. You might, but that's not the end game. That's not the hope of Christians. The hope of Christians is resurrection. The language of going to heaven when you die is never used in the Bible. And it's become increasingly common in our culture, I think, to look down on our bodies Some because of mysticism, they they want a higher sort of life outside the body. But even in our secular world, our identity is being cut adrift from our bodies, from our biology. We want to escape the body so I can be who I feel like being, to follow my heart. But resurrection shows that God's purpose is not to discard the physical as a bad idea, but to redeem it. Uh, to, To be bodies as bodies were meant to be. Because the physical is good. God made it. He intends to redeem it. It might be spoiled for the moment. And so we will have wonderful bodies. Because you are bodily. And that's part of your wonder. That's part of who you are. Bodies are wonderful things. They're not prisons for the soul. And this world is not going to get thrown on the trash heap, But resurrected and renewed. And if that's true, if that's the end game, That will affect how I think and live now. It affects things like sex and marriage. It affects work and money. It affects how I think about the environment. The resurrection addresses big questions. Questions about who I am and what is my destiny. And that's what we're going to explore together this week. It's going to be a thrilling ride. I'm really glad you're here to to do this ride together. Because there is an end coming. That's what the resurrection of Jesus means. And if there is an end, it enlightens the present. It helps us to know how to live now in the light of the end.
Would you pray? Lord God, thank you that you don't leave us guessing about the end and the future. But in raising Jesus to life, you've shown us what the future holds. Please help us to explore that truth, to weigh the evidence by your Spirit to be convinced of it, for our sake and for the sake of those we share this world with. Amen.